You're listening to Conviction, the Craig Guse story, a three-ring circus production. Welcome to Ep 23 of Conviction, the Craig Guse story. In the previous episode of Conviction, Craig had returned to work to find he had been shifted to a completely different unit. He was now assigned to work closely with an extremely violent armed robber who had turned police informant. For the purpose of this podcast, Craig refers to him as Pete. A criminal turning informant is not unusual. It's sometimes their last hope to avoid lengthy prison sentences. However, they are only thrown this lifeline if the police believe the information they could provide would assist in the arrest and conviction of targets further up the criminal food chain. At this moment, Craig didn't know who those people were that was classified, but he knew it must have been of the highest importance to be referred to his covert unit. However, first things first, we pick up the story after Craig and the team had put Pete through a few tests to see if he had what it takes to perform under pressure and carry off the difficult and dangerous job as an undercover criminal. Pete had passed with flying colours and Craig has returned to the office to do a deep dive into Pete's history. Why is this criminal so important to the Commission? So reading all Pete's information that he's given, it stood out that uh, I think it was end of 93, him and two other males, one by the name of Terence Blewett, another notorious arm robber. The other male I won't mention, that's never mentioned anywhere. I know who it was, but I won't mention his name. We'll just mention him as a third male. So there's three of them. They decide to go to Queensland to rob a bank just after Christmas. And I'm guessing Queensland is very busy. It's a beautiful, uh, humid area. It's uh, got a big destination for tourists. Probably about 850 kilometres north of Sydney, and specifically on the Gold Coast is where they went. He tells us that uh, the armed robbery failed, and after they tried, they got back in the car that they were using. It was a friend's car of our friend, our friend Pete, and they drove back to Coffs Harbour. Coffs Harbour is another big tourist town halfway on the way back to Sydney, and it's where Pete used to live. Pete spent a lot of time there, and he was married at one stage with his kids, so he was very familiar with this area and knew a lot of people. So it was just after New Year now, and... Uh, they stopped in and they decided, let's go to Plan B, let's do something here, there's a lot of money around. Pete had a mate who was a security guard at the Coffs Ex Servicemen Club, which is a massive, massive club, entertainment club, poker machines. They have uh, bands playing there for the holiday tourists, etc., etc. And obviously a lot of cash going through the place and the security guard knew this as well because that was his job. Temptation and opportunity, what an intoxicating mix. Pete had found his inside man. All he wanted was a cut. He told them about everything. He told them how the club operated, more or less. He told them who the manager was. Uh, the manager would probably go home at the end of the night and blah, blah, blah. So these guys decided the next night that's what they were going to do. They went and got a hire car. They stayed separately. We had our friend Pete staying by himself in a hotel using his friend's car. The other two, Blue and his mate, they got the hire car and they stayed in another hotel nearby so the three weren't together. They got all their equipment, which they had obviously in the car from the previous job, just before the new year up in Gold Coast. 
they were set to go. The plan was that uh, Blewett and his mate were going to go into the club. Pete was staying out in the getaway car. He was going to be the driver again. And uh, these two were going to stay in the club. It was a simple plan. An operation rehearsed in their minds over and over for the aborted Gold Coast heist. And this time, they had all the inside info from their new partner, the security guard. What could possibly go wrong? As the night progressed, it appears that the manager of the club left, which made Blewett contact our friend Pete, who was in the car, and asked him to follow him home to find out where he lived. He was pretty uh, instrumental in the robbery they'd planned because they wanted to get into the safe. And as far as they knew, he had the key. So Pete followed him home into a street and then came back to the club late and picked up the other two. The other two got in the car, they went back and they started to think about it. And they went to obviously plan C now. And that was to break into the house, which they did. And if you, I know what it's like when you're getting around places in the middle of the night or early hours in the morning. Everything sounds twice as loud. You'll tread on a twig, you tread on a leaf, and you think you'll wake someone up. I don't know how these guys do it, breaking into houses at night when someone's in there. It's a hard thing to do. But that's what they did. Blue and his mate snuck up on the house. Must have been around 2 or 3 in the morning. Slowly broke in, tiptoed through the house, into the bedroom, woke up the manager and his wife at gunpoint and tied them up, dragged them out into the lounge room, held them there, and was going to take the manager back down to the club and make him open up and open up the safe. Okay, they had to do a little improvisation. Nothing in life goes exactly as planned. A home invasion and kidnapping aren't too much of a stretch for our seasoned armed robbers. So far, so good. They soon found out that this wasn't going to happen. And that's one thing the security guard didn't know, that the safe was on a time delay. And there was no way of opening up the safe from a certain period of time till the morning. And there was no way that they were going to get in that night, no matter what they did. And obviously the manager pleaded to let them go, to leave them. He wouldn't be saying anything, etc. And tried to convince them that no matter what, there was no way of getting in and getting this money. Now this was a curveball. Things had begun to fray on the edges. And unfortunately for them, the plan C failed as well. They had to abort it. So they aborted about 4am. Uh, it was, uh, I think, Blewett who contacted our informant on an old mobile. It must have been one of the first mobiles they had then. And all of them just went back to the hotels. So it was two failed armed robs. So we had Blewett and his mate go back to one hotel. And then we had our friend Pete go back to his own hotel. Obviously returned the hire car, got back into the car that they were driving before. They all returned to Sydney. The only problem was, Blewett and his mate forgot to take the guns they'd used. They'd put them under the mattress in their beds, and in the morning and in the rush, they packed everything except for the guns. And of course, when the cleaners come in to make the beds, they get the shock of their life and find the guns. Of course, they ring the police. Got to be something sus with this. The manager at the same time, on the same days, obviously untied themselves or someone's come round, and uh, they've reported the matter to the police as well. As Craig is reading this background report, it's becoming almost comedic. Are these the actions of a criminal that the highest and most secretive police commission in New South Wales has as a top priority? There is obviously more to this than the background records reveal. And the investigation begins. The North Region hold-up or major crime squad got involved and uh, they were called in to investigate this crime that had just happened. So during the investigation, obviously, they find certain things. They find that uh, a hire car has been used in the area as well once they do the checks. 
They go through the hotel records. It's false names that have been in there that the guys have used, of course. Back in those days, you didn't have to have credit cards and all the things. It was just, what's your name and pay cash, which everyone did. They did get descriptions of them, though, and obviously that helped. Um, and also the investigation into the victims, they weren't able to give too much. They could uh, obviously identify maybe the gun or, or um, a voice, but that wasn't going to help either. They couldn't see the, the offenders because they had balacarvas on. Anyway, on the 7th of April, this happened in uh, January the 7th of April, the three of them were arrested and they were taken back to the police station separately. They were all arrested separately and interviewed separately. And as the records go, the police record records, it shows that the police interviewed our fellow Pete and that he made certain admissions, that he knew the other two, that uh, he was driving the hire car, he admitted to being the driver, he admitted to dropping them off, um, and that yes, there was a phone call made to his phone and uh, that he refused to sign. When they get interviewed, you have the option obviously to make a statement or to be interviewed. And usually what you do then is you either sign it that it's a true record or sometimes if you do make a statement you can refuse but it's usually if you are making a statement you do sign it. In this case it wasn't signed but this was what the police were offering to the court that these admissions were made and they were taken down in the police notebook. Whether they're true or not, I don't know, I can't tell you that but I thought okay this is where maybe some sort of verbling or noble cause corruption comes in. Anyone who doesn't know what noble cause corruption is, it's usually where... An example is police know, where in this case, they know that these three had committed the offence. They didn't have exactly enough evidence, but they fabricate or do something to add to the brief to make it admissible or try to make it admissible so that they will get not only charged, but they'll get convicted of the offence. Examples of noble cause corruption are planting or fabricating evidence, lying on reports or in court and generally abusing police authority to make a charge stick. Whether you like it or not, some people think it's okay, but some people don't. I suppose you know, there's a law there, and you've got to stick by that. They either did it, and you prove it, or they get away with it. Okay, let's do a quick recap. In the previous episode, Craig's new informant, Pete, has passed his first trial run in informant school. Now Craig discovers that due to a bungled arm robbery a few years earlier, Pete has strict bail conditions that could possibly mean that working with him in certain situations, the police would be forcing him to break his bail, sending him straight to jail. At this point, Craig has more questions than answers. Why is this guy so important? There were certain bail conditions set and uh, they're all set for trial about Three years later, they weren't to speak to any of the police involved unless it was with their solicitor. They weren't to see or speak to each other. Pete gave a different version to what the police put in their notebooks. He said he was virtually thrown into the paddy wagon taken to the police station. He wasn't uh, really interviewed. He said he didn't even drive the hire car, which they were alleging that he drove. He drove his friend's car. They left the hire car. He obviously, to us now, he's telling us he did do it, but to them he didn't say a thing. He did refuse to sign anything they threw at him. Nothing was really put to him, and that was it. So who do you believe? I don't know. I'll leave it in the hands of the court. But as I said, the three of them were set for trial, and they were all given these strict bail conditions. And shooting forward, you know, the other two got off. Their charges were dismissed because they were unable to identify them because of the balaclava. And for some reason, there was contamination of the evidence with the guns and some sort of fabrication 
was made, allegations, and uh, the judge heard that and was happy that there was contamination without the any ID and the guns that was thrown out. Our fellow, though, he did stay. The judge did say that uh, under cross-examination there was nothing wrong with the police evidence, even though he didn't sign the statement. It was accepted and that he was going to go to trial. And that's one of the problems we did have was that um, he had certain bail conditions. If we wanted to use him and speak to anyone in relation to these or further matters that these guys were related to him, we were actually breaking his bail conditions. So that was a bit of a uh, pickle, that one. And... Uh, it was something that we had to try and deal with, which made things hard. It was funny because the following year, which was 1995, remembering that the bail conditions, they weren't meant to see each other, but uh, Blewett, Pete and the third fellow decided to do another one. And they got together and had planned it. They'd been over at the Miranda Westfield, over on the southern side of Sydney, and decided to rob some security guards who were the Bramble security guard who were delivering money to the bank. And the plan was again that our fellow Pete was going to drive a stolen car which he'd stolen and uh, the other two were going to go in. This time Pete supplied the gun. He uh, had a shotgun with a uh, screw-on barrel and had given it to Blewett and the other guy to go in and do it. They had a uh, scanner operating so if something was put over the radio he could warn them as well on the walkie-talkies and they were pretty much set to go. He drove him in on the day. They'd, they'd done a bit of a recce and realised what time the Bramble security was meant to arrive. Drove them in. They went into the uh, shopping centre, obviously got their disguise on and hiding, waiting for the Brambles guy to come. Our fellow's waiting in the getaway car, just near an exit, pretty close by. He's listening, and next thing he hears, bang, shot fired. You can imagine his heart starting to pace then. He's wondering what the hell's going on. Next thing the fire doors come bashing open and the two guys come running out, they jump in the car. His immediate response was he could smell gunpowder, and obviously asking what the F's going on here. He noticed as well that Blewett was holding the gun, the shotgun, and there was still a bullet up in the spout, which you know, worried him. There was no safety on at the time, which he got him to do. Blewett's more or less responded, I had to do it, I had to do it. The bloke was a cowboy. And what he had done is uh, he'd gone in to get the money and, and start doing the armed rob, and the Brambles guy had gone for the holster, and uh, Blewett shot him. This is the third failed robbery, but this time they are fleeing a murder scene. It was a 34-year-old security guy by the name of uh, Robert Jones. And over that little incident, which ended up being so stupid, this poor innocent guy died doing his job. And uh, I feel for his family. So off they go. And you can imagine the feeling of these guys. You know, they've just committed a murder. That's what it was. It wasn't armed rob. It was an attempt to armed rob and a murder now. Totally different. They're all on bail for similar charges. Our bloke just all he wanted to do was get away from them. His whole idea was just to get away, dump the car where he could, take the gun off, blew it, and then split the scene. And that's what he did. He ended up uh, going out country. He unscrewed the barrel of the firearm as he was going to the country and where he was near a river. He uh, got out of the car and threw it deep into the bush where it wouldn't be found and continued on his merry way. On the other hand, Blewett was worried. Blewett uh, had to report to Bondi Police Station. He was still on uh, conditions at this time. This is before his trial was dismissed. And he had to report just to make sure he didn't leave the area. And that's what happened to people who were on bail. They used to have to come into the police station either twice a week or every day, depending on the severity of the offence. Sign their reporting card to make sure they were still here and, uh, and then go. Blewett uh, just disappeared and as far as I know he went to Melbourne, he ended up getting charged for another arm rob down there and he got put in jail not long after. He got a fair few years and I, from memory he was in there until 2002 
as I said, our fellow you know, took off and got out of Sydney as far as he could. He'd only be able to go for a short time because he too would have to come back and report on bail conditions. So this is all going back and this is all the stuff that I've been reading about this guy and you start to think, wow, this is only a small bit. It's pretty intense and then it was our job to start to investigate some of this because some of these crimes have gone undetected. Others have been where they been, have been charged and we're going to start to um, see if we can get some evidence on these guys using our informant. With Pete's police files laid out in front of Craig, there is enough information to justify working with this guy as a police informant. An unsolved murder is always of a high priority. But things weren't adding up. Something else was going on. And that's what happened. I was still new in this group, really, even though I was probably the senior guy there and used as a team leader in certain spots. Informant Pete was being looked after by another guy and happy. And they were the ones that decided, or our bosses decided, that they'd go down to Melbourne. And while Blue was in jail, they'd try and send our informant in with a body wire just to see how he was. That was the, the reason, but also to try and get some conversation on what had happened. And obviously uh, our bloke would have been concerned that he hadn't told anyone. That's what he was trying to, to get out of him. And that was the plan. Again, we had to do a uh, control lock because in breach of his bail conditions if he's going down to see this guy. Obviously had to fly him down there and he's still new to what we were doing. He'd really only just done that one job of buying guns with us. Here we were throwing him in the deep end on a murder now. Uh, not just any murder, it was pretty highly publicised at the time and very brutal as well. And that was a go. I didn't go down. I was still back in Sydney doing other things. I can't tell you what they were because I didn't have no idea at the time. But they went in there and certainly had a meeting there and Blue was very cagey. He, uh, he'd been well schooled. He whispered. There was not enough evidence there to prove what he'd done. Um, nothing came through on the listening device, but it was obviously him that had done it with our fellow and the other one, the third male. We sent him in twice, and each time nothing clear came through on the body wire. Things were said, but you couldn't hear it. That's the hardest thing with some of the body wires and, and the conditions you're at. It's not always like TV where they come out crystal clear. And, you know, you've still got that worry too in the prison system. Not everything is uh, squeaky clean either. It's hard to get a, an informant in there wearing a body wire as well without people knowing and getting told. I'd had a job before where uh, we found out in one of our jobs, one of our crooks was talking to a fellow and we find out that he's in jail. He's on a mobile phone that he's got hidden in his room and he's dealing drugs from in jail. We also find out that he's got one of the security guards from the jail corrupt buying him things, bringing him things in and getting money off him. So you can't trust anyone, that's the thing. And it's hard and that's why our unit was set up the way it was. At the end of the day, there was no charges laid against Blewett for the murder. One, because we didn't have all the evidence, even though our informant was going to give evidence on an induced statement. But also at the time, he was in jail, he was serving time and uh, he was doing a fair bit with the armed rob that he'd just done. So as I said, Blue was in for a, a fair bit of time with his history and with his bail conditions. That all becomes part of the sentencing, so there was no reason to charge him straight away anyway. We did want to clarify a couple of things, and again, we wanted to test the informant to make sure he was telling the truth. So he told us in the debrief that he'd taken the barrel of the gun that shot Robert Jones off the main weapon, and when he drove out into the country area, he threw it into the bushland we wanted to try and find that part of the weapon so as a matter of taking him down there at this stage happy become the informant manager for him and another guy went down and they got a metal detector and obviously got an overalls and whatnot and took our informant pete to where it was and they were expecting maybe a day or two to, 
to go through the bush and find it and lo and behold within five minutes they found it here's the weapon or the half of the weapon that was used to kill the guy so he was telling the truth he virtually uh, pinpointed exactly where he'd thrown it and there it was all rusty and still intact uh, i'm assuming that it was sent through to ballistics and uh, it would have been matched with the bullet that would have been recovered at the scene and just further evidence that uh, these guys were involved in this murder of, of Robert Jones. Going back to Blue in jail, you know, he was going to be in there till 2002 and he was used to jail, he'd been in there a long time and that's the problem with these systems sometimes is they get more schooled and they get more educated and uh, they move on to bigger and better things with people they meet and this is what happened. Join us next time on Conviction as Craig takes our informant Pete to revisit an old acquaintance and Craig starts to understand why Pete was chosen by the police commission and it has shocking consequences.